my desire for to seek male approval it's kind of all come from this thing of like oh dad dad give me a cuddle or dad dad do this and then that's slowly 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 being taken away without me realizing that he couldn't just be at my door you know he couldn't drive to pick me up anymore because he didn't have a car or he couldn't drive to pick me up because he had had a drink so he couldn't come Hi everyone, my name is Inherit George Carey and you're listening to Daddy Issues, a podcast dedicated to confronting fatherlessness, but more specifically, fatherlessness in successful people. I want this podcast to prove that regardless of whatever daddy issues you may possess, you can achieve anything you put your mind to. Fatherlessness affects so very many of us and so it's time to start listening to each other's stories and opening up this topic as one that needs to be recognized, heard and confronted. In today's episode, I am talking to the wonderful Joss Meek. Joss is a partner at Wired PR, a music publicity company personally representing some incredible artists, such as AJ Tracy, Georgia Smith, Jimothy Lacoste, Gold Link, Lava LaRue, and an old favourite of mine, Chasen Status. Joss also does A&R for Since 93 under RCA Records, manages Jordan Stevens, otherwise known as the other half of Rizzle Kicks, hosts her own show Doyen on Foundation FM, as well as previously dipping her toe into music journalism, writing for Hype Track, Notion, Papercut Magazine and We Are SME. In 2016, the magazine The Source included her in a list of 10 British tastemakers who should be on your radar and has recently been featured in Dazed Digital for her show Doyen, where she writes, My show aims to highlight creative job roles that young women might not have known about or may not know how to get into. I could really go on here because there's so much more, but I think that's enough. So Joss, welcome to Daddy Issues and thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's an amazing podcast. Oh, thank you. So what I'd love to do is to take you back to the very beginning of your story and tell us, what is the first memory that you have of your dad? Wow. Um, I think the first memory of my dad is probably being on his shoulders everywhere and anywhere. He would always put me on his shoulders. Um, and I think some of those memories are probably formulated through me seeing pictures of, yeah. of me in my past. But um, he was just an incredibly generous, kind, loving, um, tactile, uh, cuddly parent. Aww. He was he was the cuddly parent. Yeah. Um, my dad would be the one that we would always cuddle with on the sofa every, you know, every night. Um, yeah. We'd get into my parents' bed in the morning. I remember doing that a lot. Um, and I used to have regular nightmares, actually, as a child. And I have a really vivid memory of my dad uh, cuddling me, sort of rocking me, you know, while I'm half asleep and stuck in this kind of horrible nightmare mode. That's so sweet. Yeah. My dad sadly passed away, I think, three years ago now, um, possibly four in October, I think coming right. which seems crazy to me and um actually curated a uh a, a I think it would be called a podcast but it, it yeah. ran on 
on life acts on one extra initially which was me interviewing three other people who had grown up with an alcoholic parent it's kind of fallen down off the i think the radio one sort of yeah powers that be so you can't listen after yeah a while. yeah the hour-long one is gone yeah. but that little one that you did the interviewing oh yeah was there yeah yeah there is a tiny little clip still available i don't know if that will come back up at some point and then after we've so, done radio one yeah get that crossed. back up. <laughs> um after we'd done that after i'd sort of curated that uh, documentary i'd call it like a mini documentary mm-hmm. um um, called My Alcoholic Parent and Me. Reese Parkinson then interviewed me about the documentary and we did a whole nother bit of sort of awareness on it, oh, which was amazing. great because people could um, call in live and message in live and sort yeah. of ask questions, which I didn't feel completely qualified to answer, but was really happy to um, give my own personal experience of yeah. it and see if I could help anyone else, which was the whole aim of the documentary. Yeah, of course. Mm. I think it's always the case where one never feels qualified to answer these mm. things, yet actually you know because you've experienced something, you have a wealth of knowledge to do with whatever you're talking about. Right, yeah, yeah. But, so I want to get to, obviously, why you started talking about it and putting, obviously, that word out there and what, like, took you to wanting to also help others with it. But, obviously, the other reason why we're here is to really find out about your story and how you grew up in an environment where your dad was an addict. Mm. So, can you talk me through, I guess, the your childhood and then we'll sort of try and work chronologically there but see where it goes yeah definitely so I think um like I said he was always very giving and generous and kind and something that I can realize in hindsight is that that generosity and kindness was um at his own deficit like he was giving us everything um and I I don't really know where home is I don't I've never lived in anywhere longer than two years apart from I lived in Somerset for eight years of my life and even Mm -hmm. then we moved house once I think but um my definition of home was my dad I realized he was the person that made me feel safe and secure and the weird thing about that is that with him being an addict although I felt safe and secure with my dad there was always this thing that whether it was subconscious or now it is I'm fully aware of it was missing and and there were, that was an element of trust. That must have been an element of trust because I grew up in in uncertainty, um, and you know we've we've only since discovered like the amount of debt that he had and the amount of stress he must have been other under. Sorry, um, in trying to provide for his family, I think, and trying to give us everything that we wanted and needed and desired, which he yeah. always did. You know, if I wanted or needed a toy that everyone at school had, um, he would take out a loan and get it the next day or find a way to make the money and get it the next day. Yeah. Um, And so I think think what it's taught me is that I now sort of mirror that relationship with my dad, which seems all brilliant on the surface, Mm. um, but has something missing. Yeah. And and the sad truth of an addict is that they can't give you their everything and there is something that's always going to be more important than you. Yeah. Um and and I don't I've never seen that as being who my dad was. I saw the addiction as something separate, almost like a demon that took over the body and and became someone else. Totally. Mm. As I think it is with all kind of um if I can call it like a mental disease. Mm, absolutely, I, I think it is. Yeah. And it's like the same sort of anorexia or mm. any or depression. It, it mm. really is something that totally takes over and clouds every bit of sort of rationality mm. and and 
what that person and who that person really is. Yeah. But um, so what did your what did your dad do? What was his? He was in property. Nice. Um, he was very, very successful for a long time. And I think a lot of people knew his name and probably will still know who he is now. But um, how come in terms of just in terms of around he, his community? A, yes, yes. In the community, he, he had a practice. Um, he was like the young when he was 21. I think he was the youngest uh, partner in a in a in a practice on Parkway in Camden and mm. everyone around that area knew him and he developed a lot of a lot of buildings in that area and then I always get this wrong but because I don't remember that time specifically but around the time I was four there was a big crash with the banks and yep. he had invested in something and, and the bank needed the money back essentially um, oh. and so yeah the classic <laughs> property story I mean yeah. it's not unique to anyone but um, he even in spite of that time and, and him you know losing that project and us having to move to the countryside and sort of completely change our lives um, in terms of you know eating very cheaply and, and yeah picking up Gosh. pheasants off the road and, and having pheasant casserole endless really? pheasant casserole yeah yeah yeah, yeah. what roadkill Quite literally roadkill, yeah. yeah. Um, that we had the best childhood ever there. And yeah. it was incredible. And there were fields to run in and, you know, we would ride bikes. Where was this, sorry? In Somerset. In Somerset. And yeah. the dream. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which I went back to recently, actually, and sort of yeah. to rekindle th- those memories because I haven't been back since. So that was from what age till? I was four, from when I was four until I was 12. Okay. And yeah. that was because your dad had had, obviously, this crash financially. Yes. Yes. And were your parents together at this point yes yes they were together always until no they were together until I was um 18 okay yeah um and uh they broke up when we were back in London I think Mm -hmm. I was in I think I'd maybe just finished sixth form um so was your dad an alcoholic because was he just an alcoholic if that makes yes not the word I just mean, should come into that, but yes, he was. Yes, yeah. he he had an addictive personality. I yeah. mean, there were there was a time when he gave up drinking. We we think so, and um, he would eat so many sweets because it, yeah, and yeah. he'd never touched sweets in his life before. Then he didn't eat pudding. He hated sugar. Yeah, he would only have salt, vinegar, and you know beers and yeah, a bloody yeah, mary yeah. occasionally. Um, oh. But beer and red wine were his vice, and um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that that was from from when I was a young age. He he had that problem pretty much my it. whole life. Yeah. So with so the crash, the financial crash, didn't create his alcoholism. Or? No, but I think it probably exacerbated it. I think yeah. any financial stress. I mean, I read stories all the time of of this this sort of stigma that men have to provide, and if they yeah. can't provide, they seem to feel completely useless. And it's yeah. just so sad that. Um, well, it's changing a lot now, and there's so much more. Uh, there's so many more ways to educate yourself on on male mental health, and for, for men to feel able to express their emotions. I hope, but yeah. certainly at the time, it, my dad didn't feel it was a done thing for no, him no, to no. show yeah. any kind of weakness. Yeah. What was his story, and what do you think led him to become an alcoholic? Do you think you he was born an alcoholic? Do you think there was something in his life that that took him there, or did he have an example of this? in perhaps a parent of his own no actually he didn't he didn't I, I mean as far as I know no he didn't have an example of it and I actually I think that if you are an addict you are born an addict and mm. it's a personality trait I do think it's hereditary in that me and my brothers all have quite addictive personalities um but I think that's to do with the way you're nurtured um I think with my dad that it was pu- maybe just the time he was born in you know he was born in um 1949 so he would have been 20 in the 60s and just living Living it up yeah um (laughs) and I think just you know a lack of education on sort of the dangers of cigarettes and and alcohol and there was nothing that 
No. Took him there kind of like obvious. No, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Not that yeah. he ever mentioned. And I think, you know, also working in the 80s in property, it was a lot of boozy lunches and, and entertaining clients and things yeah. like that. Um, yeah. Oh, my gosh. My mum even says she's a lawyer. My dad was a lawyer. And I mean, people. it was normal for people to have like a whiskey at sort of 9, 8, oh, yeah. 8 a.m. in the morning. Like, yeah. So normal. Yeah. You see it in Mad Men. I don't, have you watched Mad Men? Yeah. No, I haven't. But yeah. Yeah. There's always a bottle of whiskey on the table. But um, yeah, I think I think that it was probably just a case of um, a lot of fun that then became the one release. I mean, mm. that's what I've always thought of it as in that he had a great time and knew how to party and was, you know, a great entertainer. And actually yeah. that when things became tough, it was still a release and then the release becomes a habit and then the habit becomes addiction. And But also interestingly, when you say a great entertainer, I mean, there's so many people who are great entertainers who suffer from things like depression Mm -hmm. say comedians or I mean even I mean when I was I mean just going on a slightly personal level but Mm. you know when I was probably I am outgoing and extrovert and confident or whatever but I think I was my most extrovert when I was my most unhappy Mm. and I'm not obviously planting your dad with that label but in terms of not that it should be a label but in terms of you know being the, the soul of the party and the life of the party and actually what is that hiding you know that mm-hmm. sort of thing or how what or is that something to then stay on par with that sort of reputation and that expectation and then of course that then becoming something which I don't know becomes a habit yeah I think maybe a desire to be liked is something that yeah. um I mean, I certainly feel it now. It's, it's something that I think I learned subconsciously from him. You know, everybody loved him. And mm. I think once you've been that person that's holding all the parties and is able to pay for people to do things and buy incredible presents for people's children or your own children, when you lose the ability stuff. to do yeah. that, you don't really know how to show your love and sort of excitement for other people in the yeah. same way. So do you think that his alcoholism if it was always something that you sort of knew him as anyway, sort of born into your dad being an alcoholic. Mm. So when he, when you were four and it turned, his job obviously completely like fell through in, in terms of finance. Do you think then it was kind of almost a sort of, you know when people say functional alcoholics and then did it become a dysfunctional alcoholic? Well, I mean, he was incredibly strong with it. I'm not quite sure how he did it even to this day, but he was a functional alcoholic until, I mean, maybe two, year, two three years before he died. Right. Um, he, when he stopped working altogether, um, it became quite bad because he was able to, more able to drink all day. Um, while he was working, he would occasionally come home sometimes to let the dog out and have a a beer which I didn't think anything of actually because it was so normal to me that I just thought well why not you know it's not in the office and it's sunny outside it's summer and you know whenever I'd be there doing revision or something like that um but when he stopped working it became something that was an issue and, and and there were times of sort of um quite quite difficult times where he would sort of he was obviously trying to keep that high and keep that feeling that the alcohol gave him that sort of numb yet happy feeling Mm. um and he would stay out you know for a while at the pub or just sort of forget his responsibilities more which was quite a shock and quite a a sort of shift in in my um trust and safety 
Uh, yeah. it's, it's around the time that I developed kind of, um, which I'm sure we'll go into, but sort of perhaps bad patterns with dating and, yes. and relationships and anxiety uh, and worry, uh, which I didn't think I had anxiety until he died, actually. Right. I just thought I worried. So he was a really hands-on dad. Yes. Even though... He was an addict. Yes, which is which has created a really interesting person, I think. Yeah, in me. totally. Because, because I was going to say, how do you think that's affected you? And there's probably so many branches off to this. There are so many branches off to it. I mean, to try and to try and sort of bring it down a bit, I think that um, he wasn't an aggressive drunk, um, and he wasn't abusive in, in any way. So I feel quite fortunate in that. Mm-hmm. But I think that the effect that it's had on me was a lot more subtle and it's something that um, I've sort of educated myself on. I'm a very hands-on. I really don't like sitting and feeling a certain way. I think that, um, like I said, I think a lot of it was subconscious for a long time. And actually, I think if I look back on kind of my sort of my my desire for to seek male approval, it's kind of all come from this thing of like, oh, dad, dad, give me a cuddle, dad, Mm. dad, do this. And then that slowly, slowly, slowly being taken away without me realising that he couldn't just be at my door. You know, he couldn't drive to pick me up anymore because he didn't have a car. Or he couldn't drive to pick me up because he had had a drink, so he couldn't come. Right, so he wouldn't drive when he was drunk to pick you up. No. Okay, so he he did have that rational... He did. Which is rare. He did. There is a funny story, actually, which is off topic, but probably worth saying, which is that um, alcohol destroys your body and as you get... Um, cirrhosis and you start to die from from alcoholism your body sort of gives in so this doesn't sound like a funny story but it is (laughs) (laughs) and yeah and um he was offered a wheelchair and he wanted a mobility scooter because he wanted to be able to nip from the from his um sort of care home that I put him in to the shop to be able to get himself whatever he wanted sadly probably a drink or two and um he was told he couldn't because he would be drinking and driving and we couldn't get we, we couldn't stop laughing <laughs> at this I mean, so it was the good. one bit of humor but it was <laughs> yeah. like oh my god he's not allowed to have an electric wheelchair he was only allowed a manual one because yeah. if he was drinking and driving he could be too fast on it yeah <laughs> to, um sorry I've, I've lost my I've lost my trail of thought is that there. a law uh, well, it must be. Must be. Uh, it's something I wasn't aware of, but it must be. God, that's brilliant. Um, but yeah, there was there basically as I was educating myself on sort of what it meant to be somebody. In my eyes, I saw a book that said women who worry too much. I bought it, and then I saw a book called Women Who Love Too Much, and I bought right. that. Right. And Women Who Love Too Much was the book that made me realise that I am the textbook daughter. Um, or child of an alcoholic or an addict and there are things that you do which I've actually I've this is why I've brought my phone with yes, me to tell amazing. you a few of them that I just think are so important and if anybody listening hears them might be like my gosh that's yeah, why yeah. I'm the way in um so typically you come from a dysfunctional home in which your emotional needs were not met in some way so you might not realize it Two, having received little real nurturing yourself, you try to fill this unmet need vicariously by becoming a caregiver, especially to men who appear in some way needy, which is what I've done most of my life. Um, Three, because you're never able to change your parents, you start trying to change other people. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm speeding these up slightly. No, no, take your time. (laughs) (laughs) Four, you're terrified of abandonment abandonment, and you will do anything to keep a relationship from dissolving. Nothing is too much trouble, takes too much time or is too expensive if it will help the man you're involved with. Six, you're accustomed to a lack of love in personal relationships. You're willing to wait, hope and try harder to please someone. Seven, you're willing to take far more than 50% of the responsibility, guilt or blame in any relationship. 
Eight, your self-esteem is critically low and deep inside you do not believe you deserve to be happy. Nine, you have a desperate need to control your men in your relationships, having experienced little security in childhood. The way I took that one was that you realise that your parent is out of control because they have this thing that's controlling them, you know, yeah, the alcoholism. Yeah, yeah. And and so when you do get somebody that loves you and doesn't have that, you're like, you think the same thing's going to apply. Yeah. And so you sort of try and make sure you know where they are or... yeah you know what they're yeah. doing or you advise them you know you, or you should even small things or you should be eating more vegetables yeah yeah you know things That's like so, that oh my gosh yeah um and there are a few more but those are the ones that really stood out to me um as well as this last one which said you may have a tendency towards episodes of depression which you try to forestall through the excitement provided by an unstable relationship right so you just keep yeah. kind of dating and, exciting but awful new people and it's exciting because it's kind of your normality mm. is that Maybe right, as in like yes. the excitement comes from this dysfunction yeah. that you kind. It's it's that thing of creating a dysfunctional relationship, even though it's the one thing that you actually don't want to do because it's yeah. totally. It's natural to your, you. Your, nat- your yeah. natural. State. I think that's definitely something I did without even meaning to. I mean, my my first boyfriend, I um, it's it's probably a relationship that I kick myself about, not with regards to wanting to go back in time, but with thinking how I behaved even though I still had my dad mm-hmm. in that sense, mm-hmm. because I think I wasn't aware or educated at the time on what could be going on inside me. And so I was a little bit controlling and, and very over caring in that I was trying to help him in every way in his job and his health. And, you know, yeah. you smoke too much or you do this. Yeah. And you actually, become their caregiver. Exactly that. And actually, it was probably one of my healthiest relationship choices. Um, But I wasn't aware of it at the time. And, you know, we we ended up breaking up um, based on the fact that I sort of turned into this kind of person that would just almost be not feel safe in it because it was a stable relationship. Mm -hmm. Right. So so the the most stable and um, most stable person would become boring. Right, you'd be like, "This yeah. is boring," yeah. um, and then you'd, I would create problems until somebody broke up with me. Yeah, yeah. you know, and 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 what what do you think that exact thing is out of the list, like or out of something that you can pinpoint that to? I think that is that a lack of self worth. Is that a? Um, I think that's everything is out of your control. Yeah, I think that everything in your life is out of control. You're slowly everything that makes you feel safe is slowly slipping away, right. and you've got something that could make you feel safe, but you Rejected. still at that time I was still clinging on to the fact that no, my dad's here. He makes me feel safe. Right. You know, so this must be wrong, and my yeah, dad yeah, must yeah. be right. Oh my gosh, so it's a completely skewed uh, reality of safety, kind of. Thing. Yeah, a skewed reality of safety, and also a, a sort of desire to. Um, recreate that safety with somebody that maybe isn't that person at all yeah yeah yeah. and and so actually the times that you are able to recreate that safety are probably the most dangerous relationships for you to be in because they probably are people that are either codependent like you mm-hmm. um or are addicts themselves yeah. or have addictive personalities yeah, yeah yeah and i think it's just for me you know i went through a series of really bad um really bad sort of short-term relationships which I did get myself out of but not necessarily through choice yeah but um <laughs> I remember that, that there was somebody I was seeing when my dad died and I've never spoken about this before actually but I think now might be the time um who told me he sort of stopped talking to me mm-hmm. after my dad died maybe 10 days after my dad died I told him you know, he was who I was seeing at the time right and when sort of questioned he was basically had started seeing someone else because I had been boring in the past 10 days. Wow. Yeah. And oh, um, my? my job wasn't exciting, as exciting as he thought it was. 
Oh my gosh. Well, it was in your actual career job. Yes, my actual career job. And what? The Is thing he on that about? was the, I mean, he's obviously an awful person for saying that. Um, although I I'm bet he you know, I'm sure he's learned from it. But yeah. the thing is is that the main thing that I think when I think back is so interesting about that is I still wanted him to think I was good yeah. and I still wanted him to think I was a good person and I still wanted to create some sort of self-worth from that situation yeah. whether that was working extra hard so that he could see that I my job wasn't boring and I, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. And I hadn't been boring and so I actually went back to work the day after my dad died did you? yeah and, yeah. and work was a massive crutch for me and um, as such I'm not sure I've ever fully released the trauma of that kind of experience Yes. Um, I actually watched him die. I was there. Wow. Um, I actually, yes, yeah, so I want to go there. Yeah. So, so your dad was an alcoholic mm-hmm. and slowly but surely it started totally sort of, um, his health was on the major decline. Yeah. So with cirrhosis, you... It starts in the liver and um, it started, a nurse explained it to me once. We were in and out of hospital for about three years, And this is, how old were you at this point? Um, I, he died when I was 27. Okay. So not that long ago. Not long ago at all. Um, And, uh, but this was three years before, so I think I was 24 or something. Yeah. So I was in and out of the hospital every two weeks, really, with him. Um, Sometimes it would be a good trip. He needed to come out better. He would always detox when he was there. Um, but as time went on, it became dangerous for him to detox. So he'd have to be very carefully monitored and given certain drugs so that he didn't die from not having alcohol, which right. was the most mind-blowing thing. Right, yeah, Was that yeah. his body now officially needed it to stay alive. So how long in and out was... So this was a care home... So he, so he was still living on his own. He was still living on his home and he was going in and out of hospital and his stomach was like somebody that was nine months pregnant with triplets. It was huge Yeah, because he couldn't um, get rid of any of the fluid in his body. So he'd have to go in and have it drained, which wasn't particularly nice to see and very uncomfortable for him and very, that's how we first worked out how ill he was Yeah, because it got so uncomfortable for him. He finally let us take him to hospital and then we said, oh dear, you will die if you don't stop drinking. He carried on. He did try, I think, at times to stop. Um, And then, yeah, long story short, we got to the point where he was in for months at a time, would come out and then would go back in. We had some very hairy Christmases where um, he would collapse or faint. I I turned up to his house a few times and he would be on the floor in a pool of blood or a pool of wine. Or um, Me and my brother once saved, were told we saved his life and we had to drag him on a coffee table with wheels with one of us holding his legs to get him into the car because he was a huge six foot three and weighed a ton, to be honest, um, and rush him to the hospital. And then... And this is all in your 20s. Yeah. I yeah. think I I think I lost my 20s, yeah. if I'm honest. Yeah. I think I, I'm realising that I lost my 20s. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't very well myself at the time, probably as a result of extreme stress, but it, it sort of worked. I got diagnosed with kind of chronic illnesses um, when I was 22. Okay. Um, so two years before he got really unwell. Right. But um, I think that they're stress related. Yeah. And um, some of them hereditary have terrible chronic migraine. And yeah. Um, that's something I'm learning to deal with and, yeah. and have come on to, to on top of now. But um, it's constantly changing medication. Yeah. So course. I was sort of not able to work at the time um, that he first started going in. So I'd spend a lot of time with him at the hospital. I became right. his carer as such, but mm-hmm. I wasn't being paid to right. do it. I was yeah. doing it out of pure love. And and was your brother there or was it mainly you? My older brother was still living in Devon at the time. He yeah. moved back to London just about a year before Dad died. Mm-hmm. And my little brother uh, kept his distance. He would come occasionally. Yeah. But um, he was much better at self-preservation and right. than I was. Yeah. Um, 
And yeah, I remember the day that he went in to intensive care. Um, I was at a major laser concert Mm -hmm. and he'd gone in and out of hospital so many times that I just didn't think anything of it when I got the call. I remember crouching down in the crowd and getting this call being like, your dad's in hospital and me being like, okay, all right, I'll come in on Monday. And this was on a Saturday. And then um, it's quite hard to talk about actually because it's my biggest regret probably ever. But I, I didn't go in until the Monday. Yeah. And then he was in a coma. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's um, okay. And I regret that. And I will regret that forever. But I think that I had to preserve myself a yeah. bit at that time. And but do you know what? Just you had spent so much of your time with him. He wouldn't have... It wouldn't be something... Exactly You showed that. him how much you loved him every day almost yeah I think I did and I think I was told that even though he was in a coma that he could hear me and actually I held his hand a lot and I remember him he did hold it back and and I couldn't because the only reason way I realised is that when he finally died I tried to take my hand out and his hand was tighter on me Um, but it was I was so I'm so grateful to have been there with him yeah because I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. I wouldn't have wanted to leave him on his own. I I wouldn't have wanted... We were all there, me and both my brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, I have an older sister who's an adopted sister and she was there too. My dad mm-hmm. brought her up for a large part of her life. And we had his two best friends who came in to say goodbye at one point as well. And we did it in the best way we could. But I think that that trauma um, has stuck with me and affected who I am today. Yeah. Uh, as I'm sure it does to anyone who's seen a death in, in their family but in especially in a parent a parental figure did um, you see his sort of as they say last breath moment did you see that do you know that's hard when someone's in a coma because yeah, of course. yeah because he was on the life support machine and so oh, yeah. everything felt quite forced and fake and I think that's why it felt so horrible and I wish I'd gone in a bit earlier just to see him off the machine because I actually arrived as he was going as he was going yeah um and I was on my own in the waiting area and they said you can't come in and so I was sort of in there waiting for my brothers to arrive because I I rushed there and um I just by the time I'd gone in there was there was blood and tubes and it all looked a lot more surreal and and shocking than it maybe would have done maybe not I don't know it probably would always be shocking but I think that my brothers were quite surprised when they turned up because they you know we just this has happened so many times before but it was the intensive care that was sort of like oh gosh yeah 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 there's only um, a different tone to everything. Yeah, yeah yeah and I I have to say it's not something I cry about a lot I'm normally able to be quite matter of fact about it so yeah um no it's good it's good to cry about these yeah. things <laughs> it really is you have to like sometimes it's so and I'm sure you know this now because your mm. dad died I don't know how many years ago but mm. not that long ago mm. and you have to keep a brave face so often. Yeah. And like even when friends talk to you about stuff. Mm. I mean, my dad died 21 years ago. And mm. obviously I've now, you know, had therapy for it and I can talk about it a lot more. But I was going through, the reason why this podcast started is because I went through sort of waves of grief. And I then went to see a therapist and sort of just everything felt much more peaceful. Yeah. But, you know, 20 years on and that's still, you know, I feel like I can't talk to it. If someone asks me about the the accident I'm the one keeping the brave face and yeah, they're right. the one getting upset and I'm yeah. sure you know exactly how I that do. feels I do I do I and know it, that and it's not you know bad on them it's because they have empathy and they care but at the mm. same time it's just it's good to sometimes just be the one who's allowed to be 
totally sad. totally I mean it's it's a testament to the podcast and the sort of therapeutic qualities of this <laughs> podcast I think having listened to some of the other ones people have been really honest and gone into a lot of detail and it's definitely made me feel more confident to go into more detail yeah. I think that even when I did the um, the documentary for One Extra, it was it was more surface level from my side because we had to include so many different people's stories yeah. and it couldn't seem biased because everybody has their own experience. Yeah, of course. And you can't um, really delve in. No, you can't. And you can share your shared experiences, but you can't sort of be like, well, actually, you know, mine was worse or because it's yeah, not yeah, true. Yeah, you know, it's all relative. Everybody's yeah. experience is relative. But I would, yeah. Sorry to try. I really want to ask you yeah. how... Did you ever speak to your dad about what he was doing to himself? Did you ever have conversations? And if so, how did they go? How did they, what did they pan out? Yes, yes, we did a few times. My mum definitely tried um, when uh, when she was with him. And then uh, we tried as kids as well. We tried um, as his children. Christmas was always a time because Christmas is boozy for anyone anyway. But I have to say Christmas and alcoholic is one of the what I hate Christmas to this day. Like right, I, yeah. I just can't stand it. It makes me feel anxious and I never know why. But I think it's the body keeping the score and keeping the memory. Yeah, and you probably had a, exactly a lot of dodgy Christmases growing up with yeah. everything. Yeah, yeah exactly. Body so memory. I think it's just always ending in an argument, which is completely normal for Christmas for a lot of people. But um, yes, we did. And there was a time where he actually asked me, phoned me up and said, I need help. And I remember, I remember exactly where I was. I remember exactly what I did. I called um, the, I called AA and I called another charity that I'd heard of. And I asked them what to do. And they said, you can't do anything because it's a weekend. You're going to have to take him somewhere on a Monday. And I remember just being like, can't I take him to hospital? Can't I get him, you know, just taken away? And when I got to my dad's house, he held his hands out like he wanted to be handcuffed. He he was literally desperate for yeah. me to help him. Um, and I said to him, okay, this is the plan. Like, this is what I'm going to do with you. This is where I'm going to take you on, on Monday. And I did take him to a place called Hagger, which is in Tottenham, in Haringey, which is a charity-run to help people that don't have enough money to send somebody to rehab, which right. is very expensive. Yeah. Um, very, very expensive and a shame um, because there are so many incredible facilities. Yeah. Um, and they basically said he would have to do a home detox. Um, I would have to be there with him. Right. Uh, Gosh, so you yeah. really took on yeah. a lot of the weight of his alcoholism on your shoulders. I did. Yeah. And I, I think that one thing that's come from me getting older and turning 30 and everything and, and thinking about my past as I said you know all the people that I've dated and my first boy, my first sort of boyfriend and that relationship failing and my current relationship and any issues that are coming up is something that I've realized is that I had to deal with a lot of can I swear? Oh yeah, fucking, <laughs> yeah. fucking swear. <laughs> I had to deal with a lot of shit and I was really bad at saying that for ages. I never felt stressed. I would never say to anyone I was stressed. Yeah. I was like, it's just life. You literally it's had just bigger the way fish to fry. Yeah. yeah, I was like, it's just the way it is. I'm not bothered. I Even my job that I've taken on is essentially... Uh, an extension of the person that I've become as a result of caring for my dad, yes. which is caring for 20 plus clients. Yeah, yeah. Um, so actually, I want to get there because this yeah. is now talking, not now, this mm -hmm. podcast also talks about how people who've grown up in some form of fatherlessness, obviously, your dad was very much around and you had a beautiful, wonderful, loving relationship with him, mm -hmm. but you also did have a dysfunctional relationship mm -hmm. with him because he was an addict. Yeah. Um, but you loved each other very much. Mm. But how do you think, or do you think, that that whole situation for you and trauma mm. as a child mm. and anxiety-inducing everything has um, 
how do you think it links to because you're incredibly successful you're so young mm. you've done so much thank you and super inspirational and so how, do you think there's a link there or not yes I really do I think a lot of it is uh formed from necessity mm-hmm. formed from the fact that I didn't have anybody to help me um or anybody to do anything for me my little brother and I both moved out of home when we were quite young I think I was 18 when I moved out of home and um when I was 22 I got so unwell that I had to live in a homeless shelter wow yeah for two and a half years and it was at that time that I started working with my now partner Rachel um wow was she also the homeless shelter no she wasn't she wasn't we met through music journalism she used to write for MTV and worked at another music publicity company you are so fucking inspirational (laughs) well thank you I think it was just a homeless shelter for two years with a chronic with chronic illnesses yeah it was a bad time. To, no, but to like hustling your way, <laughs> unbelievably, because you're obviously incredibly talented and sort mm. of personable, to doing all these things. So sorry, I totally interrupted you when you were talking no, about no. how you think that's... Yeah, I, I think that the, the homeless shelter created the sort of necessity and drive as well as my dad not being able to financially support me or us anymore. Um, and he hadn't been able to do that for a little while. And actually, even when we were teens, we would always work for our own money. He'd always, you know, we, we I never had an allowance. I remember really ignorantly of me seeing all my friends had um allowances at school and like every birthday on my list writing I would like an 80 pound a month allowance (laughs) and my parents being like no you can't have that that's That's just yeah it's so funny (laughs) literally to go to top shop or something that's probably what I wanted it for exactly but I was a cinema or or gigs I loved going to gigs actually I did love music yeah but um yeah I think that I subconsciously like I said with a bit of my dad that was slipping away I really wanted to prove myself to him but also I wanted to make him proud and I and that see, that seeking approval can also be a healthy thing in that wanting to make someone proud I don't think there's anything wrong with that no um, I think that you can twist it into something slightly less healthy which is what I did and have done in some ways but I really wanted to prove myself to everybody around me because I was the underdog yeah you know I was the one that Um, my first boyfriend actually was going to help me get a job in music because he had connections. And I remember when we broke up being like, oh my God, I'm never going to get this job. (laughs) But actually turning that into, actually, no, I am going to get this job and I don't need a leg. I'll come and I'm going to do it it on my own. own. Yeah. Yeah. And a friend of mine, um, Georgia, who's uh, actually an incredible presenter and and journalist and it works in tech now and has a show on Foundation FM. Mm -hmm. um, She saw an internship um going and I went for it and I got it and, and this it is sort of went from there. At the homeless shelter. This was just before. Just before. And okay. I actually lost that internship and then ended up in the homeless shelter. So I, I thought wow. I'd lost my, yeah. my chance to be in music again. I was like, no, another one bites the dust. Yeah. I'm just completely not going to get this. Um, and yes, so then I went, Rachel, we met sort of virtually. Mm-hmm. And then we met up physically. And um, we, she had started Wired PR about a month before. Right. And um, I joined her. And then we've been working together on it ever since. And we're now, I think, six years old or something crazy like that. But yeah. it was, a re- you know, in the first year, I think we made 300 quid each. It was, yeah, yeah. It was oh my you know, God. I was yeah. fortunate to be at the homeless shelter yeah because um you couldn't afford it any other i couldn't afford to live anywhere else that's for sure yeah yeah and that's that's you know that's the sad reality of the creative industries the music industry and and other creative industries is that you have to work for free for a long time yeah um yeah but knowing your worth is important and so the funny thing is that somehow i started to know my worth in professional terms yeah but still not in personal terms yeah it's so interesting how there's that huge there's it doesn't match Mm -hmm. as in 
I see that all the time mm. with either people on this podcast or people I know, but how your career worth mm. and sort of professional hat is totally different. Yeah. It's like the trauma actually comes out in your relationships yeah. and all that sort of vulnerability, which you could be two very different people at home and, and in the office kind of thing. That's me. That's me. And I think, you know, uh, Rachel has helped me a lot in that respect in that she deals with our fees and, and sending invoices and things because I yeah. still struggle with, with my, my self-worth in that respect. You yeah, know, yeah. I, I struggle to ask people to pay and yeah, yeah. I'm just not very good at that stuff. I just sort of would want to help everyone for free because I want everybody to like me and it's just... Yeah, yeah. Like your dad. Sort of, yeah. This, yeah. this thing. I mean, my dad did and always showed me he loved me and so I, I think that that element of it, it must have been subconscious because yeah, it, uh, there was something that he always put before me and I think yeah. it's like having a boyfriend that's more interested in their job than you. You know, it's yes. that kind of thing where, which is a weird comparison with your dad, but you see what I mean? It's, no, it's, no, no, totally. It's a relationship in that, you know, like I said, I've I've endlessly picked people that I can care for. So they either are younger than me in relationships mm. and need a lot of teaching and guiding or yeah. oh, or so annoying. Yeah. <laughs> or are um just generally sort of in need of care. Mm-hmm. So they might have addictive tendencies. I've had a boyfriend with addictive tendencies. Yeah, you yeah. Know, things that like makes that. I mean that's literally that makes just that's textbook kind of total sense to the fact that you mm. grow up with a with an addict dad mm. and that you want to care for people and that, mm. that like you would go for people who have similar things to your dad I mean that's totally understandable Mm-mm-mm. and it's good it's so like, the only way to break something is to become aware of it so it's yeah. so good that you're becoming aware of that because even though your dad was so loving and wonderful you don't want to be with someone obviously who has has that like, I don't it, want to go through that ever again no exactly that's something I can say and I also think that's a large part of, of focusing on my job is that I didn't want to be in those circumstances anymore yeah I didn't want to be on the dole anymore I didn't want to be on housing benefit anymore I didn't want zero credit rating because I lived in a homeless shelter I didn't want any of any of those things yeah. and I also had 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 little glimmers of what I thought was like the height of amazingness with people that I'd I'd friends and boyfriends where you know going to other countries on really nice holidays or going to nice restaurants or seeing designer clothes and I just thought I want that I want to be able to have those things and freedom yeah I just, just wanted like, to, I did think, I do think that I equated money with happiness for a long time and I still do, which is quite an outward there statement mm. because I'm not saying that everyone with money is happy, but I think that money gives you freedom Yes, and even the ability for me to have been able to send my dad to rehab if I could have or being able to now send myself to hypnotism or acupuncture yep. or therapy, that to me is is so much more valuable yep. than sitting in the homeless shelter and having to read endless books from Waterstones, yeah, yeah. Which, which is what I did. And it did get me so far, yeah. but I I value all those things so much now. Yeah, 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 of course. It, mm. I mean, it's there's no shame in saying that money gives you freedom mm. and that's a real positive. Yeah. It's a sad. It's a sad fact, though. It's a sad truth that if you, the more money you have, the more things you can do. That's it. That's it. But yeah. I have two questions because I know James is going to be pacing outside. <laughs> <laughs> but so the first question is, um, I want to know. Obviously, you grew up with your dad as an addict, and so that was some form of fatherlessness because he took his addiction, as most addicts it, slash all addicts do, above everything else as much as they can love you unconditionally. Mm-hmm. But what was it like your sort of in advert commas fatherlessness after your dad actually died? What was the what was the have you noticed a difference there? And if so, what? Just complete emptiness. Just 
loneliness I think no matter who's around me or or what I have um I don't know if that's common from what you've heard on this podcast but I think it's just this huge gaping missing hole that I am constantly aware of but don't always let myself think about and that it's it's a sense of home I think it's what I said earlier it's like I've lost my home yeah um my mum's always been very into traveling and moving around and that was so exciting and I can make I can make anywhere look like my bedroom now but it doesn't feel like home I love yeah, yeah. everyone always says you make everywhere look the same wherever you move to it's like because I've done it so many times yeah. but I just it's not it's not home home and yeah. I think it's it's a loss of um a loss of sort of family comfort and safety it's it's the inner child yeah is sort of screaming a bit yeah yeah and so you're still very you're still really early on in your like grieving process for that. Mm, am I? Yeah. I think yeah, I think that's what I don't realize as well no, as sorry, I think. I don't, don't mean that in like a scary way, but it's, No, no, I know what you mean. Actually three three and a bit years isn't that long. It's not that long and it's no. it's so good to I guess sort of uh, this is what I actually spoke to a psychotherapist earlier today. He was just saying and I'd obviously noticed this myself, which is why I started the podcast, but just talking about it is if you compare people who talk about their grief to people who don't and their levels of sort of happiness or um, peace and stuff, mm. it's mad, the mm-hmm. difference. So the fact that you're talking about it, opening up about it, talking about it on, you know, BBC One Extra, I mean, mm. that kind of thing now on this podcast, like it's healing for you, but it's also so incredibly healing for other people and hearing these stories. And that's what, I mean, that's why I'm doing this. And that's why oh, I think that's it's, why I'm doing it too. Yeah, it's, yeah. I think it's so brave for, mm. you know, people to come and to, to open up about that stuff. And it, but it's also very much your healing journey, which I think is amazing. Yeah, I think, I think um, that's the main reason for doing anything like this is, you know, who, how you felt and how lost you felt about it at one point and how, how many different things you had to do and feel to get to where you are. And if you can help somebody get there at all faster. Yeah. Yeah. And sorry, I've actually got one more question. Yes, no, that's no I've got two more questions, even though. Yes. So talking about the fact that you've now got this um, sort of hole and this void and this emptiness, do you see, how do you see yourself filling? As in, do you, can you see things trying to fill it? And if so, what are they? Yes. The main thing that I see trying to fill it is a desire to care for other, for something else. Right. Um, my current boyfriend is very lucky that he gets a lot of things done for him because I, (laughs) I sort of, um, I mean, not that I wasn't like that before I was, this is something that's been happening, you know, throughout most of, from probably the age of when I was 15, I just sort of of took on a very caring and I took on a lot more responsibility than I needed to for my age at that time. I was cooking and looking after my brother and doing everything that I, that was needed to be done in the house. Um, so you're doing that even more so. I'm doing that even more so. And I'm, I'm. I'm running myself a bit dry, I yeah. think, now. Like, as the years go on, I'm getting to the point where my cup is empty now and I don't really have as much care to give to other people because I'm trying now to give that care to myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's really good. Yeah. That's really important. Yeah. Totally. I'm so glad that you said that, actually, because it's so important. <laughs> I'm trying. It's yeah, difficult yeah. when you haven't been it's accustomed to. Yeah. Because also even the notion of an addict destroying their body is a lack of self-care so you're taught about this kind of uh, you know um instant gratification lifestyle of like yeah very reckless and like instant hits of like great feelings like that's why i've 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 never taken drugs because i know i would i would love it yeah (laughs) because (laughs) i would love the ability to completely escape from my mind and i don't think i need to but that shows just what an incredible willpower and like strength of character that you have yes i'm addicted to the other way yeah yeah Yeah. yeah, exactly (laughs) 
Okay, so last question. Yes. And I'm sure you've prepared yourself for this in terms yes. of like, you must have heard me ask it a million, not a million times, but however yes. many times you've listened. Yeah. But if your dad was listening to this podcast right now, what would you say to him? I would say that I love him and I'm, I, I love you and I miss you every day. And I'm so grateful that you were such an incredible role model as a, as a father you were such a brilliant dad I didn't want or ever feel unhappy as a child and um, Henry and Ollie and I are all so hard working because of you and the sort of levels that you set for us in your early years and your huge successes and I'm just so grateful that I have that drive and that you never need to be sorry <laughs> Oh, well, yeah. thank you so much, Joss. You are absolutely incredible. And thank you're you so fucking inspirational. I've literally had like tingles almost oh, throughout you. the whole thing. Oh, bless you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to my absolutely incredible episode with Joss Meek. The way that she's now conducted her life with all the struggles that she's had, how she's not allowed herself to even test the waters, knowing that she could be someone who could easily become an addict, I thought was incredibly admirable. And it was just a total joy to interview her. So thank you very much for listening. As always, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us via our website, www.thedaddyissuespodcast.com. A special thanks goes out to Warren at Wargie Productions, who did all my sound, and Aaron and Ben at Interface, who did my website and graphic design. Make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify to stay tuned with new episodes and, of course, spread the Daddy Issues message. Have a lovely rest of your day, and thank you once again for listening.